previously on At the Movies with Arch Campbell and Lou Katz. You had the wildest wedding I ever attended, including a prelude of movie theme songs before the wedding began. Yeah, we came out to Indiana Jones <laughs> in the church. The red. The the ring bearer came out to and uh, and bridesmaid or uh, what do you call it flower uh-huh. girls came yeah. out to Jurassic Park uh, the par- the the parents came into the Forrest Gump piano feather theme um, and my lovely bride came um, out to Unchained Melody from Ghost and then we exited to some Guns and Roses so it was all in there but then you got to remember we did it at the reception arch. We did a duet to A Star is Born. <laughs> it's at the movies with Arch Campbell yes. and yours truly, Luke Hatson. Uh. A cast of thousands. It starts right now. And really? Yeah, really. Please welcome, ladies and gentlemen, mm-hmm. the last man in America who thinks you can make a living reviewing movies. How true. It's Arch Campbell. <laughs> I used to make a living doing this. Now we're here as a public service. Right, exactly. And the underground bunker of the cats <laughs> podcasting system exactly in downtown bethesda so uh so it's been a big week for tv oh gosh it? uh game of thrones right are we you and i gonna have to watch game of thrones <laughs> guess am i the only person on the planet who's outside of you who's not has not really been into the show now you know what i've been watching is barry oh are you yeah. watching barry oh, watch, in the uh, second season oh barry and it, they just wrapped the second season Every episode they did of Barry, at the end of the episode, I laughed out loud. It was like a little mini cliffhanger Uh with each episode. And, and, you know, I laughed from surprise and humor and uh, and Barry. That's that's my show. I'm a fan of I just don't know how... Every time I the, the you know the season ends and they've done two seasons on it now, I wonder how where are they gonna what are they, where are they gonna how go with it next? Sustain how, it. how can they sustain it? How can they outdo what they've already done? That's know? why they're so brilliant. Yeah. Well, and speaking of brilliant, uh, now we have our dear friend uh, Jen Cheney who knows everything about TV and film. So so she's on the line. Let's bring her on right now. It's been a big week for television as well as movies, and who better to discuss it than our great friend Jen? Cheney, who covers entertainment for Vulture.com and reviews film on WTOP Radio. She is a noted author. And of course, everybody's talking about Game of Thrones. And where shall we start? There's been an enormous backlash to the show uh, based on the way that it ended. Is that a first where the viewers rise up and say, we we don't like the way this story uh, came out? Absolutely not. (laughs) 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 No. Uh, I mean, it, it happened with The Sopranos, certainly, um, with that cut-to-black ending. But um, to me, the, the best analogy for what's happening with Game of Thrones is what happened with Lost back in 2010, which was also you know, a mainstream, hugely popular show where you wanted certain things to happen at the end, or at least some people did, and people felt like there were questions that weren't answered and, and you know, went on these tirades. I wasted eight years of my life watching this show. And, you know, the thing is, you couldn't possibly have wasted your time if you enjoyed the show for several seasons and just didn't like the way that it ended. So, uh, you know, for Game of Thrones, people had started a petition even before the finale saying they wanted them to reshoot the entire eighth season <laughs> to make it to their liking 
And that's just not how TV works. Right, exactly. I noticed that 19 million people tuned in, and it's been more than 25 years since the finale got that kind of audience. And it makes me wonder, what does Game of Thrones say about this moment in our culture? How does it reflect uh, where we are as a society? Well, I mean, in terms of consuming entertainment, I mean, I think people still appreciate big spectacle, sprawling stories, and certainly stuff that I would refer to as um, Comic-Con relevant. (laughs) You know, I mean, the things that really draw in audience are the Marvel movies, something like Game of Thrones, which was really kind of the TV equivalent of that, Star Wars. Those are the, the big franchises that really resonate with people. And Game of Thrones is going to become one. They're going to be making prequels, so it's not like it's entirely going away. Well, but what I was thinking of, too, is it was uh, violent and explicit and political, and I'm just wondering, and of course I'm putting you in the position of being our pundit, and I don't mean to, but I think I think there's something there. Yeah, I mean... You know, certainly the the explicit violent nature of it, uh, that was a real talking point when that show began. And uh, I think, oddly enough, people got used to it. Um, But I also think they started to be a bit more judicious in in the degree to which they were um, kind of incorporating that stuff. But I actually did feel like the finale was sending some messages about politics that are relevant to now, specifically just the idea that perhaps the people who are the most power hungry are the people who are least... Uh, equipped to serve the people for the greater good. I won't give away any spoilers for people who still haven't watched the last episode, but um, that to me was a very strong theme uh, that felt... I don't know if they were thinking about, you know, modern times when they when they came up with that. George R. R. Martin had, had obviously outlined what was going to happen in the story a long time ago, but it felt that way to me watching it in 2019. I'm going to watch Game of Thrones. I have not watched it, but I know I'm going to get around to it because I need to. And what is the divide between people who were attracted and people like me who sampled a few episodes and thought, I, I'm going to wait? Well, some of it may be, and you can tell me since since you decided to wait, but some of it could be, you know, being a little bit off-put by what you referred to earlier, which is the level of violence and, and some of the gratuitous nature of, of what was going on. Well, and the dragons. When I saw <laughs> the dragons, I thought, this is not for me. But, I mean, clearly uh, there is something going on there. And, and it is a nice comment on our time that I don't have to watch it in real time. I can watch it when I feel like it. Why do you not like the dragons, Arch? I, I just, you know, I'm just not a dragon guy. That's a red flag for you. There's a dragon in this? I, I, I can't watch it. it dra- dragons remind me of kid stuff. Ah, okay. But I am going to watch, and uh, I just and I feel like the 19 million who saw the finale are just the beginning and that this will recycle through our world. Uh, in the years to come. Yeah, well, the other thing about Game of Thrones, um, and, and another show that just ended that also drew a, a, a significant audience, but without the same media attention, which is the Big Bang Theory, mm-hmm. is that they proved that there is a possibility for people to still want to watch TV in real time and have this kind of national conversation about right. it, whereas, you know, we, we tend to watch everything else on our own schedule. I hope that that's not the last gasp of that sort of thing but a sign that that still is possible. So, well, that's Game of Thrones, and uh, and as you say, uh, there'll be prequels and, and other references to it, so I guess we need to get used to it. And I need to get over my fear of dragons. 
Yes. Hey, I wanted to ask you about the finale of Veep. I'm going to declare myself. I felt like this was a good year for Veep to end. And I thought the finale, without giving it away, uh, did a fairly good job of wrapping things up. What about you? I did, too. I I actually was there um, on set and in the writer's room for the oh. entire two and a half weeks that they were making that episode. So, um, And I wrote a big piece for New York Magazine about that. And so my perspective on it is a little bit skewed because I watched them do it and held the secret in my mm-hmm. heart for months <laughs> until I wrote the story. Um, but, I mean, I thought that, again, it's hard to talk about it without revealing what happened, which yeah. I won't do. But um, it really did take a dark turn. And there, there were some really dramatic moments in it, aside from the usual comedy. And, I mean, we all know that Julia Louis-Dreyfus is, is an incredible actress, but she really has to cover the whole emotional spectrum in that episode. And having seen her do it in person and watching it, you know, like everyone else did, once it was cut together, she's phenomenal. I, I don't see how she doesn't win yet another Emmy for that. It, it's kind of sad to see that go. Yeah. Uh, let's go to the movies real quickly. First, I want to mention a week ago, John Wick Chapter 3 surpassed Avengers Endgame. When I was watching John Wick, I kept thinking, gosh, this is so violent. I really shouldn't like this. And I just couldn't help myself. <laughs> what about you? It really starts off with three action sequences in a row that are just rock'em, sock'em. Uh, I didn't know that you could commit such violence with a library book, but, you know, <laughs> yeah. this movie helped me understand that. <laughs> to your point, I felt like, especially the second half of the movie, that it, it was starting to feel too repetitive to me, mm-hmm. and there's only so many times I can watch Keanu Reeves shoot that many people at point-blank range. Plus, the backstory, the longer these movies go on, mm-hmm. the less it makes sense. I'm like, why? He went across the desert to meet with this guy, and... Uh, Travis Hobson was sitting next to him and I, next to me, and I said, "Why? Why did he do that?" And we're like, "I don't know." So, <laughs> can we say overkill? Well, I mean, and they clearly said it. There's going to be another one. They've already said that, and they set it up at the end. You, you know, it's a cliffhanger type of ending. You know, I wish they could be a little more creative in some of those action sequences and not have so much just really gratuitous gunplay. Mix it up a little bit more because it is. I don't know that our culture needs that much of that. Now, uh, this is Memorial Day weekend, and Disney is on a roll remaking their classic cartoons, and this week brings the live-action version of Aladdin with Will Smith in the Robin Williams role. I saw you and your son at the screening, so you must have several opinions on it. (laughs) Actually, he was pretty uh, muted when we left. Uh, he just, I asked him if he liked it, and he said, yeah, and kind of shrugged. <laughs> I, th- I think he's a critic in the making. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I went into it with the lowest possible expectations because the trailers were awful. Yeah. And with those expectations, it was better than I expected. In some ways, it's, it's more helpful to think of it as a, a movie version of the Broadway musical than it is to think of it as a remake of the cartoon. Mm. But because where I think they went wrong is all the scenes where they tried to make it a live-action version of the cartoon, like the way they staged Friends Like Me, yeah. and they had Will Smith, you know, multiple Will Smiths, and the same kind of cartoonish imagery that they had. Whisking over the screen, you know. Yeah, I'm going to have nightmares about that blue Will Smith like <laughs> appearing in multiple forms. It wasn't about his performance either. It was about the way that they edited it and the choices that were made by, by Guy Ritchie. Um, Will Smith was much more effective when he was you know, pretending to be the prince's aide, and he didn't have to be blown up 
and turned blue. I found that just ridiculous to look at every time they they went that way. I just felt like they were working really hard, and I came away feeling like they tried too hard. Yeah. That the music was loud, and they were cramming it down our throat, and I think that it didn't come close to approaching uh, the energy that uh, Robin Williams created. Right. And I mean, I will, I will say that I don't think Robin Williams would have been great in live action either. No, you're, yeah. Like, I think the, the, the genie worked as an animated creation and, and with his voice and his, you know, ability to, to improvise like no one else could. I, I will say they updated the story in ways that made it much more palatable, certainly having Jasmine decide she wants to be, you know, the ruler um, mm-hmm. as opposed to mm-hmm. just being kind of, oh, I'm just going to have to marry someone. Uh, and some of the language in some of the songs was, was changed a little bit. Yeah, cleaned up. And that was those were all good changes, I thought. So, but I'm kind of mixed. I hope to uh, run into you and have a conversation with Olivia Wilde's Booksmart, which is one of these uh, last night of high school coming-of-age films with a, uh, a female-centric uh, view that I just thought was wildly creative. And I just love the two stars, Caitlin Deaver and Bernie Feldstein. And when you see that, uh, let's find each other, because because uh, Clueless is your one of your favorites, and you wrote that wonderful book about the making of it. And uh, this is often compared to Clueless. Yeah, and another great, um, you know, last night of high school movie is Dazed and Confused, which is one of my favorites. So that genre is, is one that I... I really love, and I've been dying to see Booksmart. I just haven't gotten to it yet. Well. Happy to talk about it once I do. But I, I know you'll get to it, and so uh, I kind of thought of you and uh, your work uh, as I was watching it. So I'm a fan. And I'm a fan of yours, and it is always great to speak with you, and Lou and I so much appreciate your time. Oh, it's been it's been great. I always love coming on. Always get a kick out of talking to Jen. So Lou, Lou, is the official announcer of this thing. Some official. Uh, I call him wrong all the time. What what is coming up on the program? Well, Arch, I'm glad you asked. We hope the three people out there listening will stay tuned for some important shout-outs. Oh, good. And behind-the-scenes stories of a baseball star who spied for the CIA. Ooh, really? You're listening to At The Movies with Arch Campbell and Lou Katz and a cast of thousands. Okay, Lou, we're back and I have a few shout-outs. Go do Uh, it. First, uh, the American Film Institute. I'm a big fan of theirs. And they kick off AFI Docs, June 19th through 23rd. And this summer, this caught my attention, the AFI is presenting the Fourth Estate Film Series... And they will include a screening of All the President's Men with a Q&A afterwards by Bob Woodward. Cool. Have you seen All the President's Men oh, lately? not lately, but what a, what a great yeah, film. I saw it a couple of years ago. It still holds up. I th- And I think it's the best uh, movie made about Washington. Wow. Here, here's the rest of the series. They're going to have uh, broadcast news with uh, James L. Brooks, who directed it. And then they will show Network with a Q&A featuring Meet the Press host Chuck Todd. Have you seen Network lately? No, I haven't. The last time I... Network's made 1976. Gosh, was it that long ago? And it is as current as as can be about the wacky, 
the the strange, the bizarre things that have happened to television hmm. since it. Now, uh, we need to remember a couple of people. Okay. And let's start with Doris Day, mm. died May 13th. You know, I used to go out to Carmel, and she mo- uh, she owned part of the Cypress Inn huh. in Carmel, California. Wow. And it was a extremely pet-friendly hotel. So it was all people and their pets because she was an animal rights activist. I know, big time. The only thing I'm remembering about uh, Doris Day is in the late 50s and early 60s, her movies were considered um, sort of uh, racy. You know, it was she and Rock Hudson, and Rock Hudson was trying to get her into bed, and she wouldn't <laughs> do it. And uh, Lover Come Back is another one with uh, Tony Randall. Uh, those those movies kind of define the early '60s, and uh, and she was a, a just a, a a gifted singer. Understand? We also and uh, and sadly we lost another big star out of Hollywood. Oh, uh, the next day they announced that Tim Conway had died. You know, mm. uh, there aren't. He's considered one of the greatest second bananas of the golden age of television. He was never the star. He was never the first guy. Uh, but on the Carol Burnett show, and you've seen all oh, the stuff yeah. on oh, YouTube, right? He, yeah, exactly. And he would, he would just, just the way he, he, he did stuff on TV. And, I, and you know what I loved about Tim Conway? He'd laugh at his own stuff. Yeah. You know, it'd be like, a, it's almost like off script goofy. Uh-huh, you know, uh-huh. he, he was great. He started as a disc jockey in Ohio. No kidding. And uh, someone came through and heard him and recommended him to uh, Carol Burnett. And uh, the rest is history. He was 85. I posted uh, the dentist sketch. He stabs himself with the Novocaine. He's about to pull a tooth for from Harvey Corman, and oh, instead geez. he stabs himself, and then he stabs his arm, and he stabs his hip, and, and Harvey Corman is just dying laughing the whole time because he wasn't expecting it. And uh, the he and Corman, you know, he and Corman uh, did a two man show later in their life. You mean like a comedy, uh, yeah, tr- a troop stage thing, thing. Hmm. and uh, and they'd uh, they'd go out and and he would break up uh, Corman, and that was the act. Hopefully, as you look up those those guys up there, Tim and uh, Harvey are having having a ball and telling jokes. Yeah, and if you could look up some of the great material uh, on YouTube of uh, Tim Conway and the Carol Burnett show, real classic comedy there. Now. Some messages from the president of Cats Podcasting, <laughs> Mr. Lou Cat. Hey, listen, if you happen to have a comment and uh, you'd like to send one to us or a suggestion about what you'd like us to cover on our podcast, you can do it by email. You can do it by snail mail, but nobody <laughs> nobody gets that anymore. Anyway, here's our email address. Uh, try Arch at, mm-hmm. at houndradio.com. And he's very good about answering the one or two emails that he's gotten in his lifetime there. <laughs> I sit by my screen exactly. every day his saying, iPhone. surely someone is going to mail us something, some comment. That's Arch at houndradio.com. Oh, and Hound Radio is where we uh, broadcast from, right. or podcast from. This right. is your internet radio station. And right, and as a matter of fact, this Memorial Day weekend, we're having our Hound Top 100 Countdown. Wow. Which starts wow. Friday afternoon, 3 o'clock. 
top 100 songs from folks who uh, listen to The Hound who have uh, given us suggestions to, to play back in order. So we're going to do that. It's going to repeat over and over again. It's like the great days of radio yeah, here. Well, yeah, we're, we're trying anyway. <laughs> so what's coming up? Uh, the story behind the baseball star turned spy. Ooh. You're listening to At The Movies with Arch Campbell and Lou Katz and a cast of thousands. Aviva Kempner is one of America's most prolific filmmakers. She calls herself, and I love this, the Jewish Spike Lee. Her films spotlight little-known stories of Jewish heroes. Uh, They include the life and times of Hank Greenberg. She's with us now to discuss her fascinating new film, the spy behind Home Plate, and hello, Aviva. Hello, how are you? You and I have been friends for many years, and I've been a fan of your work for a long time. And this film uh, takes on the story of Mo Berg, who spied for the CIA and was uh, quite a well-known baseball star. Well, actually, the precursor of the CIA was the OSS, It was this fascinating but short-lived intelligence agency created by FDR. How long did it take for this to become common knowledge? Oh, it was decades later. Because first of all, after Mo came back, when anyone ever asked him, and it's in the film, Ira Burkow talks about you know meeting him in the press box, and he said, "Well, Mo, what'd you do during the war?" And Mo would take a finger to his (laughs) mouth and say, "Shh." I can't talk about it. And they never wrote an autobiography. And for decades, there's been all these filmmakers, some of which, you know, lesser known in my film, but also supposedly Dustin Hoffman, um, George Clooney, all wanted to make a film about Mo. There were um, two filmmakers, one of which, Neil Goldstein, who's in my film, together with Jerry Feldman, a cameraman who made all these interviews, but they never finished the film 30 years ago. Now, you know, there was a a feature film, uh, The Catcher Was a Spy, with Paul Rudd, which I saw. Well, and that was last year, and that's Hollywood's version. I say, especially with these interviews of those, of the players who played with him, and more importantly, the men who spied with him, including William Colby or Dom DiMaggio, we get a really full, insightful view of what Mo's life was. Well, I feel like that you capture the reality in the documentary, and the feature film looked like a feature film and was less believable. Well, you know, Hollywood has their versions. I say truth is stranger than fiction, right? right. But what I try to use as much as possible is wonderful film noir so you, I hope successfully that you really feel like you're there at the time of, you know, on the streets of Washington or in Europe or in Zurich. Mo Berg was an unusual man who spoke several languages. And I, now I'm going to give you a chance to respond to this. The line about Mo, of course, is he spoke seven languages and couldn't hit in any of them. But actually, he had a 243 batting average, so that wasn't too bad. <laughs> who did it? Was that Oscar Levant's line, or who was that? No, oh, different people who he played with said it, you know. Now, there's an idea for you, a documentary on Oscar Levant. You want to pay for it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no, Oscar was great. You know, and the other thing, uh, about Mo is he is known, and I think up until this day, the brainiest man in baseball. He was on Information Please, which sort of was the jeopardy of his day, and 
They got thousands of letters because he could answer all these questions. He also was on these two trips to Japan and in 32 and 34, and the latter trip included, you know, Babe Ruth. He danced with Babe Ruth's daughter, as she says in the film, uh, in a phone interview. He sort of came on to me. And then maybe he did what, I don't know if it was an instructed, but certainly it was an insightful mission to take secretly to visit the hospital in Tokyo because the ambassador's daughter just had a baby. And he took photos and footage of the Tokyo skyline that was later used, you know, to prepare for the Doolittle raid. And in his work, World War II breaks out and he uh, begins to work underground. And I suppose the zenith happens when he arranges a meeting with Heisenberg, whom, of course, we all know from Breaking Bad. Now you know why his name was used, right? Heisenberg was the brain behind Germany's attempt to build an atomic bomb. While we were secretly developing the Manhattan Project, Moberg was the OSS assignment to be the nuclear espionage spy to work with the Groves and the Manhattan Project. What surprised you in this work when you started putting it together and doing the research? What is the one thing that stood out to you that was a surprise? I think for me, the saddest story is that Moberg's father never saw him play baseball as a youth. In high school, he was a star in Princeton, 15 years in the major leagues. And his immigrant father, who preferred that Mo pursue his legal training than baseball, never went and saw him play. And what were the teams Mo played for? It was first called the Brooklyn Robins, and then he played for the Chicago White Sox, and then he played uh, for the Washington Senators which were a winning team back then. And, and then he played for the Cleveland Indians briefly. The longest time he played uh, professional baseball was five years for Boston and then two years as a coach. So the name of your film is The Spy Behind Home Plate. It opens at the Avalon this weekend. And we picked Memorial Day weekend on purpose. And you're around the country uh, in the next couple of weeks? Yes, and I'll be at the Avalon every day this week, and Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. You can go to the Avalon website. And Friday night, I'm on the field at the Nats baseball game. They're going to give away tickets to the film, and they're going to show excerpts of the film, uh, especially the winning uh, senator. So I hope it's going to inspire the team. <laughs> hey, Aviva, I hope you can help them win a game. <laughs> Yeah, well, I don't know if I can do that. Aviva, I love your work, and I love that you work in D.C., and you keep you keep churning it out, and uh, it's always interesting. Thank you so much. All the best to you. Keep working. Aviva Kempner, and the name of your film is The Spy Behind Home Plate. Yeah, my joke is, thank God, he switched from shortstop to, to being a catcher. Can you imagine the spy behind shortstop? <laughs> The shortstop was a spy. It just wouldn't have the same cachet, right? Right, Aviva. Thank you. My pleasure. Okay, so Lou, that's our show. Today we reviewed John Wick Chapter 3. I liked it a lot in spite of myself. Jen Chaney, she's not so hot on it. Uh, The new Aladdin film, she seems to like more than me. I wasn't wild about uh, the Aladdin film. I would tell people to rent the uh, 1992 right. uh, animated, animated version. Animated version, sure. 
and there's a film called Booksmart, which is just, it reminds me of Superbad or Clueless or one of these uh, high school night before, and it's it's got a nice edge and energy to it. Mm-hmm. And uh, Game of Thrones has ended, so if those of us who haven't watched it <laughs> have a lot of we catching have a up. Lot. We have, I have a DVD of the first season. We have so. a lot of binge watching. <laughs> We're going to work on that. Uh, we'll be back uh, very soon with an all-review edition. Excellent. Do you know that's coming up? Yes. And now, uh, what should we say besides... How much, how much we love doing this, and <laughs> thank you for listening. We do. We really do appreciate it, and hopefully you'll uh, listen to the uh, next podcast coming up in a couple of weeks. And I'm Arch Campbell, and I hope you see something good at the movies. I'm Lou Katz. Thank you so much for joining us. At the Movies with Arch Campbell and Lou Katz and a cast of thousands comes to you by way of the Katz Podcasting System. Katz, America's number one name in delicatessens, Broadway musicals, and podcasting.